Hey guys, it's me, Richard Kaufman, the host of the Vertical Momentum Podcast, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, yes, you're seeing me for the sixth time today. Thank you guys for showing up. I love you guys. Thank you, Monster Energy, for keeping me energized. I love you guys. Guys, this is going to be a great episode because we're going to be talking about stuff near and dear to my heart. Post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic success. With my brother, my brand new brother, and I'm so grateful to have him, another Jersey boy done good. We're going to be talking about success. We're going to be talking about PTS, PTSD, uh, podcasting. We're going to be talking about first responders. I am so blessed and welcome to have my brother, Kevin, with the flag behind him coming on my show. Kevin, my brother, what's going on? Yeah. You know, I've watched so much of your stuff today. I uh, I feel like I know you, even though we met for the first time. But you're from Jersey, so that auto automatically just brings us a little bit closer. Yeah, you know, I'm a Jersey boy, and uh, I still love all the Italian food. So I love being from Jersey. So my first question is, before we even get started, because I do have a traumatic brain injury, and if I don't ask, I will forget. What is your definition of resiliency? Wow. Um, you know, I know the definition, the dictionary definition of resiliency, overcoming adversity and coming through and having the power to, to go through, but it, it does mean a little bit different for me. Um, I've the resiliency to me is not only going through and getting through to the other side of whatever pain and suffering comes your way. It's using whatever you, you experienced in whatever trials and tribulations that you've had for benefit because it ultimately becomes your strength. Just to give you an idea, you know, after my shooting, um, I, I didn't tell anybody I was a cop because I was 39 years old. I'm retired. So when you tell somebody, Oh yeah, I'm a retired cop. Well, you're 39. You're really young. I didn't want to answer the follow-up question because I was embarrassed because I went to work one day and never came home. But over time, when I became, when I learned to accept it, I started using it as a strength. So now when people ask me, and I, I'm 49 years old, so people aren't asking that question anymore, unfortunately. They ask me, you know, oh, I'm a retired cop. If they do follow up with that, and I'm like, well, I was in a shooting and I had to retire early. So it's about using whatever pain and suffering you went through as your strength. Because that, <laughs> in those times of trial, that's really what makes you who you are. And I know that comes from, that's something that that you've experienced as well, and you've used it. You see, so... The people who not only experience, because everybody experiences that stuff. Everybody experiences pain and trauma and suffering in their life in one way or another. It's how you use it when it's when you're through it. Because the sun will rise, but as sure as the sun will rise, difficulties, trials, tribulations, they're going to come along with that sun. And, you know, I, I totally agree. I didn't get that until I turned 50. And I lost... 80% of my vision and I, I was supposed to go speak at an Ed Milet event the week after I lost my vision and I couldn't fly. And Ed's because Ed, one of my mentors, he said, he called me and he said, Rich, nothing that's in, in your life has ever happened to you. It's all happened for you. And there everything is a, is a teachable moment. There is a plan. For everything. And I was like, yeah. And everything switched, you know, because I, I turned my mess into my message, you know? 
I was just on the phone with somebody right before we started who's going through some troubles and stuff. And I said, there's a reason for this, you know, and you're asking questions like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? You're not answering. You're not asking the right questions. Um, listen, I know you're, you're a big faith guy. Okay. From, from what I've watched. And I actually went to college in the beginning for theological studies. I wanted to be a pastor. I was very tied into my faith. Then what I college had, did you go to? What college? Fairleigh Dickinson in Madison. And okay. I had, and I had the, a wonderful professor, Dr. John Becker, who was incredibly intelligent. He's a, he's a, he was an ex-Jesuit priest. And I was a literature, I was, a, I was, I was do, taking a literature course and it was called The Bible is Literature. And when you read The Bible is Literature, it's a very violent book. I lost my faith. I'm like, well, what is this? You know, and for 30 years of my life, no, I'm sorry, it's, it's, say 20, 27 years of my life, I totally lost my faith. But what it took, it took a retired hockey player disguised, or actually a man of God disguised as a retired hockey player to bring me back to the church and realign me with my faith. So all that stuff that I went through, all that badness that I went through, there was, there was a purpose, but I kept asking that question. Like, why me? Why am I doing this? I was asking the wrong question. It's like what, you know, I was, I should have been asking, okay, what's the purpose in all this stuff? And that's how I look at life. Now I look at like, whatever something comes my way, you know, the, your, you know, the mortgage payments do, or your kids need this instead of asking, God, why is all this stuff happened to me? Now I now ask, well, okay, what's the purpose? I take a step back. So it's just a different little mechanism on how to deal with those stresses and pains. And, and I, I definitely want to get back to that. Cause I want to talk about something that Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter from rich dad, poor dad talked Talk to me when they were on the show. I want to talk about that. Uh, but tell us a little bit, give me down and dirty about who you are, where'd you come from, how'd you grow up? And because, you know, my wife is from the Italian side. So is mine. Uh, people want to be firefighters. Not many want to be police officers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're just going to leave it at that. Uh, so what was it like growing up and what was the, why was the choice of becoming a police officer? Uh, you, you know, telling you about myself, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm really nobody. I'm, I'm nobody that just some people would see that had a, had a bad break and a bad life. I grew up in the, uh, Atlantic city area and I grew up in a household that wasn't very supportive, that there was a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff going on, um, that affected me down the line, a lot of abuse. And the first chance I got to get out, you know, I was, I was fortunate. So I was fortunate where I was a decent athlete and I was somewhat intelligent. Um, so when I got to college, I went to a college far enough away that, that I could play football and that I could just get away from my, my, my family. And once I got away, I was able to try to reinvent myself because I was a broken kid. I had zero foundation. And so you try to reinvent yourself, but all you're doing is, is you're building a, a structure on a crack foundation and we all know how that ends. So, you, you know, every couple of years I would find something to try to reinvent myself because whatever I did earlier didn't work. But, you know, I, I, I enjoyed being out on my own. I enjoyed, uh, fending for myself, you know, since I moved, I was 17 when I left the house. Since then, I've never had anybody do my laundry. I learned how to cook. I learned how to be totally self-reliant on myself. So that's what, so the biggest lesson college taught me, aside from all the classes and all the money that was put into college, it really taught me how to be with myself and rely totally on myself and also make me realize there is absolutely nothing in this world that I can't accomplish. No matter what's going on, 
I can figure it out. Uh, whether everything down from like a broken ice maker to, um, to, you know, I'm, I'm down, I'm depressed. I can figure this out. I just have to have a little bit of time. Not to say I don't have hiccups along the way. Cause I did, um, you know, and then I, I sort of, uh, after, after college, I wanted to be, a, uh, I, after I lost my faith, I wanted to, okay, I'll be a teacher. I taught high school for a year and I realized teaching high school is not for me. And it wasn't because of the students. It was because of the other teachers. I have a lot of compassion for kids who may not, because I can identify, you can see kids who didn't grow up so well. So I always gravitated towards those kids. And I realized that it just, the other teachers, the way they spoke about these kids, I, I just, I say, I can't, I can't be a part of this. I can't be involved in this. So I left after a year, so, you know, I went through a lot of different schooling in order to be a teacher. And I just left, I just up and left. And, you know, I shifted around from job to job. I sold cars. I traveled coast to coast until one day I'm in the gym and uh, a guy comes up to me and says, well, have you ever thought about being a police officer? I have never, I was <laughs> oddly enough growing up. I was, I was not anti-police, but I was on the other side of the law. Um, and thankfully I never did anything too bad where it, it had long-term repercussions. I said, no, I never thought about it. My brother, on the other hand, took every police test. So he says, you know, we're hiring Take, give it a shot. I go in there and I take the test. It's like a base. It was a, it was, it was not a civil service town. It was a chief's town, which for, mm -hmm. for people who don't know, one test is very structured. The other one is sort of whatever they want. It's, it, it comes down to who, you know, and that's, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's just, that's the truth. I do very well on the test. I get hired in June of 2001. Um, I'm like, okay, this is a job. It's got a future. It's got a pension. It's got benefits. Uh, it's a relatively safe, safe town. I got hired in Roseland, New Jersey. And then I go to the Academy and the world changed on September 11th, 2001. I'm sitting in the Academy and uh, it's a normal day. We do our PT. We, we, we sit down in class, getting ready for instruction. Captain walks in and I'm going to paint a picture for you because he was a, he obviously was hired in the 1970s, did PT with us. Guy was in great shape, but we used to call him the crepes because he wore those, those grape smuggler shorts with the high socks mustache. I mean, he looked like he was right out of, right out of, um, not, not, uh, those, that, the old cop shows plane just hit the world trade center for people who aren't in New Jersey they don't realize that planes used to hit the world trade center or, or those buildings all the time. Corey Lydell from the New York Yankees flew into, flew a Cessna into one. So it, it was like, oh, all right, a horrible accident. And about 20 minutes later, he comes in and says, another plane just hit the world trade center. Now everybody's like, Oh shit. Problem was sitting right to, to my right was this, uh, she was a female transit officer. She, I saw the look on her face. The look on her face changed because her father had worked for Cantor Fitzgerald in the world trade center. And we know how that, that worked out, but we didn't know anything at the time where there was no information. We get recalled to our department and that's that, that nice little job with a pension and it all changed. Everything changed. You know, the way we did police work, the, the hypervigilance, everything just, just changed. And you know, the police world changed forever that day. So I took a job as just a job and then all, all of a sudden, as I'm standing out there, a, a recruit, my, my lieutenant hands me my gun and says, hey, kid, just don't shoot anybody. I ain't qualified yet. 
I wasn't qualified to, to carry a gun, but nobody knew what was going on. Everybody thought we were at war and we were. So I go out there and stand post. And I remember the looks on people's faces, um, walking up to you, just searching for information. And then I, I realized that police work is not about chasing bad guys. It's not about, you know, making arrests. It's about helping the people when they don't know where to go. They don't know where to go for any answers. And they, they look to police and you're, you're supposed to have the answers. Little did they know we didn't have any more answers than they had. So yeah, the police world changed that day really quick. Well, people that know my story know that um, September 11th totally rocked my world, totally changed my life. Um, that was the day I dedicated my life to helping others that can't help themselves. And, and I've been on that journey ever since. Um, but I also have some friends now that are now they're retired police officers. And I asked them, I'll say, Joe, you know, if you would, if you would have to go through the Academy again, now, would you do it with all the cell phones and all this other stuff? He's like, not a chance in hell. Every cop I said, they're like, we love the job. We love helping the people, but the bullshit just, just isn't worth it anymore. So for me, I, I love man. Now my house, we bleed red, we bleed blue, we bleed green. Uh, my daughter, a couple years ago, actually for a couple Halloweens in a row, was a police officer. So we love our red, our our firemen, police officers, and veterans. Our house is always open. But so you know, take us back because I think, in my mind, September eleventh was the worst day in our history. It was also the I'm, best you know, day. That, at that time. Yes, it was also the best 12th, day. September 12th was the best day because we were all Americans. They sold out of flags within like two hours. Everybody was an American. There wasn't an African-American, Italian. We were all Americans and it was all hula hula. We were all, we were all one nation. So, and, and I wish we can get back to that one nation under God again, you know, it was, it was a lot like, uh, the week before Christmas. Okay. The week before Christmas, people are a little nicer. They'll let you through. If you're trying to merge onto the highway, you know, that, that, that just opening up of your hearts. Well, that was 24 seven. And yeah. as much as police work changed, the attitudes towards police were just fantastic. You, you, people just coming up and saying, Hey, listen, thanks. And there, there was no, yes, we were always held to a higher standard and we should be held to a higher standard, but not to an unreasonable standard. And these poor guys today, cause I, I still work with them uh, in a capacity where I I'll work, uh, I'll call them out for road jobs and stuff like this. So I'm, they're making money with me. So they're friendly with me, but I watch what they go through on a daily basis. They're held to us to an impossible standard that the, there's the expectation level has grown so far. The pendulum has rocked so far the other way. And, you know, there's always that balance. I think it'll come back because if you look at, say, you know, the biggest uh, litmus test in the world is the NYPD. You look at the NYPD under the David Dinkins, they weren't very popular. Times Square was a whole. Rudy Giuliani comes in, 9-11 comes in. They're heroes again. Now it's pendulums going back. So that pendulum is constantly swinging. For those people who say those days are, are never going never gonna to be there again. I don't necessarily agree with them. It will come. Unfortunately, 
and this is not going to be a popular opinion, it's going to take some sort of mass event, such as 9-11, in order for that to happen. Because like you, I although I am no longer an active police officer, I took my oath of office on June 19th, 2001. I still hold to that oath. My whole family, you know, I, like you, I bleed green as well. My whole family, I have, I have relatives that fought in the Revolutionary War. My most prize, I have three prized possessions as far as military, and it's not even that they're worth anything. I have my grandfather's World War II glasses. I have my uncle's prisoner of war medal from, he was prisoner of war in Germany for 27 months. And I have my other uncle's Navy dog, he was a turret gunner, Navy dog tag, you know, those tin oval mm -hmm. ones. Yeah, and he was he was in a plane crash and he didn't make it. But I have the one he was wearing when he died. That's just it's and you know how hard that metal is and it's bent. Yeah. So, so and I look at those things with reverence because these were on people who was it was a generation where they didn't even think about that stuff. They just went. They just went. You know, you talk about military stuff. I have my my uncle's letters, the one that died. I have his letters back to my grandmother, and. um I, I look at this idealistic kid, much as we all did when we joined either the military or the police world. We were very idealistic. You know, I'm going to go get him. I'm going to save the world. You watch his attitude change. And it listen, it's peppered with stuff that I can't even say on air anymore. Mm -hmm. But you watch that idealism change over time. Um, and then this event happens and um, he's no more but i look at that thing and i'm like you know this is the last piece of memory i know where he's buried he's buried in beverly national cemetery in uh south jersey uh and i go down i'm one of the few people that are left to go down and visit his grave because i owe it to him you know i never met the man he died you know 30 years before i was born but um he's my family he's my blood and those police officers out on the street we spoke about this earlier those police officers out on the street they're my family they're my blood and I'll do whatever I can to, to stand them up. But I will also tell them when they're doing something wrong. And some of them do. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can't be afraid to call people out. <clears throat> no, but just like the military, you know, there's some people, you know, there's some people that screw up and they don't follow the rules of engagement. Um, but there's some reason that sometimes they're, they're depending on, you know, the situation. Like when Iraq, you know, when you have people hiding in mosques and we can't shoot back, well, then that's that's a whole fucking different story. Yeah, <laughs> we're not gonna get in 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 that. But like I said, even like if I get pulled over, which I have, um, I'll even thank the officer. I'm like, you know what? Thank you for doing your job. You know, and and it, you know, normally it's just whatever it is. But I say, you know what? Thank you, and, and just stay safe because you're making sure I'm safe. And you know when you get when you put your gun belt on, you might not be going home that night. So I say thank you. You know, I mean, you might get a rookie that might have a case of the ass, and he. <laughs> but you're like, you know what? He puts his gun belt on like everybody else, and he knows that he might not go home. So I still thank him, you know, and I still show the respect because I'm I've lost. We lost 393 first responders on 9/11. Mm -hmm. And it's tattooed on my body. It's this way I will never, ever forget it. So, and that's why I, I love my first responders. And, mm. uh, so let's let's get back to you. Now it's, I was trying to I was trying to deflect questions from me, but you're just bro, bringing me right back. On. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> they they call me the GI Joe Rogan. So 
It's not going to happen. <laughs> so talk to us what it was like on post 9-11 and then take us up to the day before your, your involved shooting. So police work, um, I, I write about this in, a, in an upcoming book I got coming out. Uh, you, you ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond? Yep, I love right. that show. So my favorite line and the one that most aptly defines police work was said by Robert Barone. And he says it's uh, absolutely mind-numbing boredom interrupted by brief moments of horror. Mm-hmm. In a small town, and even in, to some extent in the inner cities, because they're, they're not as different as the small town cops. You'll have nights where you're just praying for an alarm call, just something to get you there and moving around. And then other nights you just you just don't stop or you see the worst in humanity or people at their lowest point. My favorite, uh, most memorable call was um, she was a, a suicidal female. And uh, we go there, you know, we she's got a knife and her four year old son is sitting next to her. And the son's name is Mason. It's burned in my head. I'll never forget Mason. And she's in a bad way. Like, she doesn't want to hurt her kid. Like, that's not the point. But but it's her kid, and her kid doesn't want to leave her side. Now, she's got a knife. She's got a weapon. So if, if and I had some years on at this time, and if I didn't know, if I didn't have the experience, I would treat it as, as a violent weapon. But the kid was a little bit more important because he was sort of stuck in the middle. So there's something at the time it was the 21 foot rule. And then it went to 28. I think it's up to 30 foot that if somebody's carrying a knife, you have to keep that, that distance. Otherwise they can draw, they can come at you before you can draw your weapon and you can fire the shot. So, um, I, I don't know why I did it. I just sat, she was on the bed. I just sat on the bed next to her and just talked, you know, and, um, Mason is sort of, he's staying away from me. He doesn't quite know what to think of me. And as time moves on, he just sorts of, you know, he's, he's curious about what I got on my uniform and my gun belt and stuff. And he's sort of pointing at stuff. And it took, there were, it was probably, you know, hour and a half for me to get this little boy to, to trust me enough. You know, long story short, she drops the knife. We get her help. Fast forward 10 years. I'm in, um, I'm in shop, right? And I hear I'm in plain clothes, you know, and I'm shopping and um, I hear out of the back is, hey, Officer Kevin. And and I turn around and this this kid I don't recognize, you know, probably 14, 15 years old, says, "Um, my name's Mason and I recognize you and you came and you helped my mom. Ten years. So a four year old boy, think about that's police work. Okay. That is true police work. I made a difference in that one person's life. Boy, you want to talk the <laughs> drugs, alcohol will never be able to replicate, duplicate that feeling right there to know that at least in one person's life, I made an impact. And that's, that was police work. And, you know, there's lots of different calls like that. Uh, that's just one example. And that's my favorite one. Um, you know, it could be, <laughs> there's, there's, you'll laugh more, You'll cry more. Um, you know, you'll see some really bad stuff. Dead children. You'll see, I, I used to do motor vehicle crashes. You'll see people just smushed on the highway. There's people bifurcated, you know, where their upper torsos uh, 20 yards away. 
uh, people's heads crushed. And then you go to the autopsies and you, you, you just, you see, you, you just see stuff that people aren't supposed to see. And that was life. And that was life for a, for a very, very long time where you just, you, you're walking to work and you, you have these mechanisms of coping where, um, unhealthy humor, Mm-hmm. The gallows, the gallows humor, which I know vets yep. have because I've I oh, deal yeah. with an, oh. I deal I deal with enough. Oh vets. yeah, definitely. And it's just a way to disarm the situation to make yourself feel somewhat normal, uh, to deflect the the awfulness. Because you know the the infant deaths that I did experience, and I didn't experience many, thankfully. But I didn't have kids when I when I had my infant infant deaths. Having kids would have sent me really in a bad spot. You know, and, and who do you have to talk to? Because you can't in the police. So that's a big problem. You know, police, especially men in general, do not have the uh, ability to be vulnerable or to be emotional. We're, we're supposed to be men. Police officers, it's it's amplified. Yeah. Because if you say, hey, listen, that call really bothered me. They're going to take your gun. They're going to take your gun. And I, that's just like taking your manhood away. So you just, you keep it in, you try to, maybe you, you drink. Um, a lot of cops I know uh, only hang around other cops because they're the only people that'll understand them. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I was a cop for 13 years. And had I been a cop for another 12 and did my full 25, the stress probably would have given me a couple heart attacks. Well, you know, and I want to talk about that a little bit because one of my good friends, um, he's on the Burton County Prosecutor's Office. And he would say, because he would come in the store all the time and we would just sit and chat. And he's like, bro, I, I, can't, I can't go home and talk to my wife. And he's like, because she would ask me, honey, how was your day? And I can't tell her, you know, I just came home. I just came back from a quadruple homicide involving children. So it's uh, my day was okay. Yeah, that's says, it. You know, so he he was like, I can come and talk to you because pretty much veterans and first responders are the same shit, just different uniforms. Mm-hmm. But and so I I think that because I found now, like I said, we're up to eleven hundred interviews. That the average American male lives till seventy eight. That that's the average American male. The average first responder or veteran male dies at 58. 20-year difference. So what is the denominator? And it's stress and it's moral injury. And I don't hear a lot of shows talking about moral injury. It takes your soul. Okay, it takes your soul. So you're looking at things day in and day out that you're not supposed to see. So here's here's a really interesting statistic and i used to say it a little different but i i did some more research on it so i'm going to say it a little bit a little bit more correctly so the average citizen in the world sees one maybe one to three critical incidents in their lifetime the average police officer in a 20-year career sees upwards of 600 so take your worst day multiply that by 600 and then you'll have an idea of the stress you know, there's a vet they saw, and, and I'm not minimizing anybody's stress. They, they they were in a bad car accident. They saw their mother die or, you know, hopefully it's nothing worse, but occasionally it happens. That happens all the time to police officers. And where are they going to go? You know, 
there that you you can't go talk to a police psychologist psychiatrist you can't you just you're gonna so that's the one thing lethal weapon got right the movie lethal weapon it's the one thing martin riggs that kept getting approached by the psychologist and he's like not nah, good and he would screw around with her so one th that uh, the rest of that movie is pure fiction but that is the one thing that is 100 correct and you know like i talk about all and i i think we're one of the few shows that highlight moral injury because we see and do shit that nobody should ever see or do um and then a lot of times we lose a lot of our brothers and sisters to suicide 117 so now we have this survivor's year. guilt and then um, or 2023 anyway you know then you do your you do a guy a girl does their 20 years and all they're left is with their memories and a bottle a bottle of whiskey and a pistol in their mouth and unfortunately something that i don't hear ever talked about is how the dispatchers the shit that they go through because they don't have closure at all. They're just Word. taking phone call after phone call. And they they should be recognized also with um, struggling with PTS and stuff like that also. Or any power to do anything. So um, we just interviewed a dispatcher on our show. And it's hard to get an active dispatcher because departments regulations are very strict and they don't want their people to go out and talk on shows and stuff. We just did a dispatcher because I know what the dispatchers go through. And here's, here's the thing. So they feel ultimately responsible for the people that they're sending on those calls. When, yeah. the, when the shit hits the fan, they are, the, all they got to do is sit there and tap their fingers on the, on the table and they don't know what's going on. If they don't hear anything over the radio, they don't, they don't know if the, the shots could be fired. They don't know if they're wrestling around with somebody or in a tussle and they got to sit there and deal with it and hope everything's okay, but they can't do anything. They can't do anything, but give support, no. which they do a fantastic job. Most dispatchers in the world do an, an, an incredible job. And yes, I, they, they're finally being recognized as first responders, as essential personnel. If you look at the flag with everything on it, they're finally up there. Yeah. So I just wanted to put that out there because I had my friend Deborah Green on, and that was something that we really talked about was 9-11 dispatch. So I wanted to say that. So yeah. take us to the day before your officer-involved shooting, and then take us to the day after. The day before? You know what? Because you're think... two you're two different people at this time. Yes, you yes. I have absolutely zero memory of the day before, which is July 9th, 2013. I have I know I was working 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., but I have no recollection whatsoever. I'm sorry, I was off. I that I know I was off because we were working, I know the schedule we were working, but I have zero recollection of what my life was like. You know, I you, you try to get some stuff around the house because you know you got to work tomorrow and you're, you the stuff that stresses you out around your house pre-incident, it seems very small at this point, you know? And I, I'm telling you, I have absolute, I've never been asked that question. That's I, why I, I'm the male, that's why I'm the male Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I have no answer for you because I can't even remember July 9th. I can't remember what time I woke up, what I did, whether I went to the gym, whether I ran, whether I didn't have, uh, I had, I had small kids. So more than likely I was taking care of them. 
Um, so, I had a so the morning, the morning or the day that you put on your gun belt. Obviously, we all know what, like when I got hurt, I never knew the day when I put my my Kevlar on that was going to be the last day I was ever going to wear it again. And you know, obviously, you had no no idea that the last time you put that gun belt on, that was going to be your last day. So take that, take us to the day of your officer involved shooting. So we were working what's called the Pittman schedule. We were working 12 hour shifts. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, I was scheduled to work, um, Wednesday, Thursday. It was my short week, um, 7 PM to 7 AM. So in a, in a small town like Roseland, 7 PM to 7 AM is you're pretty much putting everybody to bed, making sure the town's yeah. safe overnight. It's Wednesday. It's middle of the week. There is nothing going on. Now, unfortunately, um, too many people say, God, it's so quiet. I wish there was something to happen. And I said the same thing. And it's like, you know, that is an omen to say, hang on, because it's about to get bumpy. I pull up next to my partner. You know, we go car to car and, you know, we had our coffee and we're just, and I, I remember telling him going, God, I just really wished something would come. I don't care what it is, you know, a small little fender bender accident, uh, uh uh, an alarm call or, you know, nothing was going on. So we used to have to do business checks. Like, uh, we would go around to the little strip malls, pull on doors, just make sure everybody's locked up for the night, take a ride around. And, you know, you look forward to your lunch where you can sit and relax, maybe watch a little TV in the squad room. And that was my night. So I go, I, I go down, start, I pull into the, uh, little strip mall to start doing my checks. I don't even get out of the car over the radio. It's crack. Everything changes. We had an officer on the desk and he said, start heading to this particular address. Um, it's an open 911 call. Now, 911, when they set it up, the protocol is that anytime somebody dials 911, you have to go. Whether it's a misdial, whether it's a dialed an error, whether it's just an open line. This happened to be an open line. And he said, just start heading to this address. The problem was, is the address that he called out was a well-known address. They were having domestic issues. There was a boyfriend-girlfriend thing. and so we kind of knew to start heading there. I turn around. I could tell you the route I took. I could tell you where I turned around. And that's why it's so funny when you asked me the previous question, what'd you do the day before? I have no recollection, but I could tell you every second of every moment after this, this call came. About 70 miles an hour, my partner and I just left each other. So he's right around the corner. He's directly behind me. We're going lights, no sirens. You know, it's, it's about 1030 at night, 1045, somewhere around there. Uh, so there's no cars on the road. We're doing 75, 80 miles an hour down, down this, um, not a residential street, but you know, a smaller street. We pull into a townhouse complex all the way in the back and, um, turn off our lights. We don't want to alert anybody. We're there. And there's three of us that show up there because the, the supervisor came, we go up to the door, all three of us, and you can hear yelling in the back. So you give that pound and all you hear from the other end of the door is don't come in here. Don't come in here. Um, one of the guys, my partner goes around the back cause it's a townhouse. There's only one in one way in one way out outside mm -hmm. of the garage, which, you know, we, we had covered. So I had gone to my car. We're going to make entry. Something's going on in there. We, we got an open 911 call. Something's not right. And I was going to break in the door. The problem with breaking in a door is there's steel doors. Okay. This isn't, you know, um, this isn't Hill Street Blues. You don't just kick in a door. 
um, I had to get what's called a Halligan bar, uh, like a fireman's crowbar. So there's a way of doing it where you hit the lock, you jam the pry in there and you pop it Mm. and you break the door jam, but at least you'll get in there. Little did I know that this guy, his name was Anthony Vocatoro. He was holding his girlfriend hostage with a, with a nine millimeter Glock. And he, and as soon as I started hitting the door, cause we did it on a, on a, on a, uh, a, a cue. As soon as I started hitting the door, he raises the gun to shoot the woman. My partner who's standing on the back deck shoots and hits him in the back. Um, <laughs> and you know, you hear, you hear three or four gunshots and you just sort of drop the bar back up a little bit. You're like, Oh, shit this just this just got real all i care about is my partner in the back because i don't know anything i'm going over the radio i'm trying to keep dispatching again that officer on the on on the desk i I, the trauma that he went through just hearing all this stuff because i'm yelling out shots fired shots fired other units start to arrive because they sort of heard it the surrounding towns and as soon as i knew the front was covered i start going around the back um and i see my partner's fine so like okay but I, I'm looking, I mean, we can see it's a little privacy deck and we can see, I can see the woman and she's sitting up against a wall and her knees are up against her chest and she's sort of hugging her, hugging her knees. So the three of us back there, actually there's four of us at this time. We make this plan like, all right, we're going to get through the sliding glass door. We're going to go because we don't see the suspect. We're going to get to her because that's our job. So we go up on this, this is probably, I guess about nine by nine privacy deck. And I go to the far right corner. The stairs are on the left. And I get behind patio furniture. Because I can... At, at, sometimes the best decisions are the worst decisions. Because I can see where where I am. I can see the everything. I can't see the guy. I don't know where he is. And I'm looking for him. All I can see is, is, uh, is the woman. And the woman is not looking... We weren't quiet. The woman is not looking towards the backsliding door. She's looking off to the right. I never picked it up. My partner throws a chair through the sliding glass door. Glass goes everywhere. And at that moment, I just see this big flash. And I and I hear the bang. It doesn't deafen me. You know, if you go in the range and you lift up your ears like this, mm-hmm. you know, you'll hear the you you'll get the tinnitus. Yeah. I, I didn't hear any like I heard a bang, but I didn't and I feel so when you're shooting, you get uh gunpowder blowback on your face. Mm-hmm. Yep. I feel all that. So this guy, what he did, he was behind the wall. And as soon as we broke through the door, he went like this, pop. And he volleys around at me. Um, After the investigation, I find out how close that came to me. It came within a quarter of an inch of my left ear. Um, And it wiggled my left ear. Like I, I, I could actually feel it. Uh, So I knew it was close, but I hit the ground. Now I have no idea. You know, you, you, you always hear those stories where you're never going to know if you're shot. And that's, I, I just knew my shoulder hurt and I saw a lot of blood on the ground. The other officers were able to get off the deck because they were right by the door. And I'm stuck. I'm trapped. And I know this guy's right there. I know exactly where he is now. If I crawl through, I'm behind metal patio furniture. I have no cover. So that good tactical position I thought I had, I got nothing now. And I know if I crawl through that, I, he's got an open shot to my side torso, no vest coverage. I'm dead. This guy shot at police officers twice. There's no reason in the world why he would not do it a third time. So uh, um, 
you know, and, and the time just slows down, you know, I, I think very clearly yeah. you, you think you're going to panic. You don't panic. It's just like, so I, I, so officers will take their keys and they'll put them on the antenna of the radio, the key mm-hmm. ring. And yeah. I did that. Well, when I hit the ground, the keys fell off. I just looked over, grabbed, picked up the keys, put them back on, got in a prone position. Now here's where things get really strange. You know, I was on there. I was trapped on there for a minute and a half, minute, maybe felt like 10 hours. I start thinking of my kids. I have a, uh, seven month old, seven or eight month old at home. I have a, um, he's not even three yet. He's two and a half. No, no, he was three. He was three and a half. I'm never going to see these kids again. My wife, um, my wife's going to end up having to raise these kids all alone. Um, they're never, maybe my three-year-old would know me a little bit. My, my young guy will never know who I am. I prepare myself mentally. I'm like, all right, I'm going to die. But guess what? If I'm going, you're coming with me. I get in a prone shooting position. And then at this time I can hear the other officers yelling out, are you shot? Are you shot? And I said, I don't know. I could see a lot of blood. What I had done was when I went down, I fell on all the broken glass and it, it, it just shredded my arms. Then, and to this day, like I, I have a little piece of glass they were never able to remove because if they remove it, it would do more damage. Um, but I didn't know this at the time. Now, one of the other, no, <laughs> there's two types of people in this world. There's, there's people who run away from danger and there's people who run towards danger. And you find out in situations like this, who they are. Mm-hmm. One of the supervisors, now remember there was four of us back there. One of the supervisors ran away left me for dead and went and called the chief of police because obviously that's, you got an active gun battle. That's, that's, that's command right there. The other two officers, thankfully did not go anywhere. And if I can say, I don't even want to say their names because I know one of them still active. They were able to reach over the privacy deck because I, I couldn't, I'm 230 pounds. I'm six foot four. I, I don't move. I'm not that spry. He was able to grab the back of my gun belt and sort of walk me over as the other officer held cover. At this time, the suspect, he runs upstairs and we can sort of see him and he gets me off. You know, you, you do one of these. You're like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm not shot. And then we held, and it's July. We held post for, um, for two hours after that, waiting for this, the state police teams unit to show up and like the SWAT team, I guess, you know, it's a better term for it. Fully waiting for this guy to come out guns blazing, suicide by cop. But here's the beauty part of it. As we're sitting there, as we get off the deck, I see this guy runs upstairs. I see the woman slowly get up, stand up against the wall and snake out like a, the, if she was, she ever wanted to have another career as a cat burger burglar, she'd have been perfect. Cause she just stayed up against the wall and exited through the garage. And we're yelling out over the radio. We got the, we got the, the victim coming out, victims coming out. She's good. So at this point, game over, right? You're like, you, you, you sort of decompress a little bit as you're holding down this scene going, holy shit, this, this, this really just happened. And, um, team unit shows up. We go, you know, I, I have to go to the hospital. I, I'm for, I don't want to leave, but I'm forced to go to the hospital. I have to get the glass out of my arm. Now here's the, here's, here's the part that it haunts me to this day, Richard. It just, Cell phones are carried with us all the time now. At the time, I never carried. This is 2013. I never carried my cell phone on duty. 
Um, it was always in my car. I'm in my car's in front of the house. I can't get to it. I'm in the ambulance. That's stage decent, decent place away. I have to grab one of the EMT's phone call phones and I have to call my wife. It's about 12:30, 12:45 at night. And she has to get a call from an unknown number because I didn't want her to hear it from anybody else but me. She, you know, all the wives will talk. Hey, uh, hun, um, I was in a shooting. I'm okay. I'm not shot. I have to go to the hospital. I have to get glass for my arm. And then I, I had to go. Can you imagine what my wife had to go through? And that wasn't even the worst of what she went through. That, But it's horrible enough to, to even fathom about that stuff that haunts me to this day i um i think about that a lot you know if i was in that position what i how i would react to it powerless so because it's amazing like i said and you mentioned that i i haven't even thought about it when I got my head run over, my body run over by the Humvee, and I made that call to my wife, I never even thought about it, how it made her feel at that moment. I don't like to think about it too much. But, you know, but that's why, you know, my bride is my everything. She's my life. My, she's my everything. And she literally has my blind side now. So, okay, so now we, we talked about the day before. We talked about the day of. Take us to the day after. Because now you're no longer that guy from the day before. You're no longer the guy the day of. Now you're the guy the day after. Three different people, three different days. I I finally get back from the hospital and I'm able to, because they talk him out and they arrest him and everything. And I finally get to my car and I get home at about five o'clock in the morning. My first go-to move, hug my wife, kiss my children, you know, just grateful. Just this, I have this overwhelming sense of gratitude, but my adrenaline's through the roof, obviously. I go out, I, you know, normally after coming off at midnight, I would, you know, you get some sleep. I can't, I know I'm not going to be able to sleep. I go out and take a run, just so, sort of trying to process what just happened. I, I don't, I can't even, like, I, I don't even know how to, how to, how to think about what just went on. So I, I'm trying to run it out of me. I'm trying to get, get some uh, adrenaline out of me so I can get some sleep. I lay down, tossing and turning. Maybe I got an hour or two sleep. I, I don't really remember. I wake up. Police world's a big sewing circle. Everybody wants to find out what happened. Everybody knows you were involved. So I wake up to like 50 calls on my phone. And it's one of the reasons I never sleep with my phone in the same room as, as me. Because I don't want to, you know, when I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping. I do the same thing. Yeah, it's 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 too much. So my phone's in a different room. I wake up, 50 calls. I try to get back to a couple people. You know, I speak to the people who were involved, make sure they're okay. and um, And, you know, I just... I, I just try to process what was going on. But that night, my wife was overly, she was concerned. You know, she was concerned that her husband was just in a, a critical incident. We try to go to a movie. Like, just get, you know, her mother comes over, watches the kids. We just, just her and I get out, have have some fun. We go to see a movie called This Is The End by uh, Seth Rogen movie. And in the beginning of that movie, it's it's kind of about heaven and hell um, the people in hell sort of stay on earth, but there's this big loud bang with some flashes and we're in the movie theater. I see this. 
I start losing. I've never had this stuff happen before. I start losing my mind. Like my my heart starts pounding. Uh, I'm sweating. And we had gone out to dinner. And I remember telling my wife, because she, listen, she had worried enough. And I didn't want to worry her with any of this stuff. So I said, look, my stomach's bothering me. It's not uncommon for my stomach to bother me. Uh, I'm going to go to the bathroom and just, I'll be back. I walk out and it was like, I, I got hit. I couldn't breathe. And I could, I'm just sitting there trying to catch my breath. Thankfully the lobby's empty or the hallway is empty. And I, my, my hands are, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm, I'm in full blown panic mode. Whatever mechanism I have for calming myself, deep breathing, I try it, um, really doesn't work very well. After about 15 minutes, I, I tried several times to go back in. I, you know, I, I would pull on the handle and say, you know, but I couldn't. It was like the door was made out of pure lead. You know, it just couldn't move it. She comes out and she knew. It, it, she, my wife is a very smart woman. She knew something wasn't right. So she says, no, let's go home. I said, no, we'll go back in the movie. It's it's fine. It's it's good. I, my stomach's bothering me. She goes, nah, this movie sucks anyway. Let's, so we go home. Um. And I'm still to this day, like it's a, that movie is actually on Netflix and it, I just came up and I still can't watch that movie. That night, the nightmares began. And, you know, and most of the nightmares thereafter were, were either I'm, I'm trapped and I can't get out and I'm always trapped. And I, no matter what I do, I can't move. I'm stuck in cement. Or if I pull my gun out and fire my gun, the, the flag comes out with the bang and you never get restful sleep. You start sweating. You have night terrors. You you scream and um, so wet that you know there was a couple times I checked to see if I wet myself, like if I pissed the bed. I mean that's how bad it is. I know it's it sounds like an exaggeration, but that's not that's that's no. no lie. You get up and change your shirt several different yeah. times, and yeah. um, the night terrors got so bad. Well, I mean before that, so that weekend we were going to go down and and take the kids down to see my parents. Uh, they still lived in the Atlantic city area. And I thought, Hey, you know what? Change of venue. It was great. That ride down to South Jersey was, I, I didn't say much, you know, and, and I got small kids in the back. So it kept everybody occupied, but I didn't really say that much. I was just very introspective on like, what the heck, what's going on? I, I don't like, what is this stuff? We get down there and I'm really not okay. You know, I don't want to talk about it. My brother was a, is, is a police officer and he's sort of trying to ask me about it. And I just like, you know, you just don't want these. You're like, no, nah, let's not now. As we're leaving, um, my three-year-old spills chocolate milk on his car seat. It's three-year-old. I lost my mind. I, you would have thought that kid burnt down my house. I start screaming and yelling at him and my wife, you know, the mama bear syndrome, she'll always try to deflect and get in the middle of stuff. And then she, all of a sudden she's, she's the target of my wrath. So we're driving up North on the parkway and I'm yelling and screaming the whole time. I have no idea why I'm so agitated. My wife was begging me to pull the car over on the garden state parkway and let her out the most major highway in New Jersey. Dangerous. She wants to get out with two small children. That's how bad it was. We get home. And of course, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an idiot. I, I never took my foot off the gas and never got it below 80. Uh, we finally get home. I realize there's there's something something wrong. And I don't know where to turn. Um, 
I call an organization here that it's a hotline for cops because I just didn't know where else to go. And they get, they hooked me up in a, with an appointment with a therapist, uh, a gentleman named Dr. Eugene Stefanelli, who I knew, Dr. Stefanelli, oddly enough, he lived in the town I worked in. He was a PBA doctor. So he's a union doctor. I didn't really put much value in it. So my department is very, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to sound kind of bad, but I'm there. You're supposed to have a critical incident debriefing within 48 hours mm -hmm. of the incident. My department waited until the following Monday to have a critical. This happened on a Wednesday. They waited until the following Monday. Uh, I go to the doctors that morning because there's still some glass in my arm that they couldn't get out. They're going to try to get it out again. And I remember the doctor looking at me and going, uh, she's taking the glass out and she goes, are you okay? And I, I just said, yeah, it's glass. It's no big deal. She goes, no, it's not what I'm talking about. And she goes, are, are you okay? And it, something snapped in me and I just started bawling, crying. I said, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm really, really not okay. Um, and she gave me a hug, which I thought was weird, but I look back on it as something I needed a hug right then and there. Um, I go to the critical incident debriefing after the, after the doctors and sit through it. And it's very unmemorable what was going on in there. But I remember sitting in the squad room afterwards and they had taken our shotguns out of the cars. Now I've been shooting a shotgun since I was five years old. Uh, I was very comfortable around guns. I'm sitting there and they say, well, we're getting the shotguns back in the cars. I was like, great. You know what? That's fantastic. At least some good is going to come out of this stuff. Then I find out they're only going in supervisor's cars. I lost it. I'm lucky I didn't get fired. So some of the guys took some, some, cause I start yelling at them. I'm like, you tell my wife that only you get the protection that I, I got to sit there and, and, and shoot. Uh, we were carrying 45s at the time. I got to shoot with this where you get a shotgun and you get to spray and so you get the better protection than I get. I said, I want you. So they, they pick me up and they walk me downstairs and they take me outside. That was the last time I was ever in the police department, except when I picked up my retirement ID, which I, I picked up the ID, threw my badge on the ground and walked out. Well, see, you know, I can I, I can see that, you know, they're going to put the gun in the supervisor's car. And he's the guy that hightailed it and ran away. Well, you were deep in the shit, and Correct. it's and that's what would have set me off. It's like, for what? He's he's not even there to watch my six. Now you're going to give him another gun that he's not going to use. Meanwhile, a guy who was extraordinarily proficient in firearms. I was very good at firearms. I was very safe at firearms. But they, you know, that's that's their decision. Uh, from there, my life began to spiral out of control. Um, I couldn't sleep. I would drink myself silly because it was the only thing that, so drinking was the only thing that, that gave me a little bit of respite from the chaos that was going on in my mind. And I would, and the more I drank, the better it was. I go see doctors and they put me on, um, the protocol is uh, anti-anxiety and antidepressant. Um, and here's the thing. So they put me on Klonopin. Mm -hmm. Um, when you drink on Klonopin, it's extraordinarily dangerous. However, you get drunk very quick. Once you find this out, you're like, all right, that's just not too bad. I'm a cheap date now. So I would, uh, that was my protocol. You know, I did, I, I was out, uh, you know, I, I, they wouldn't let me back to work. 
I have, I'm sitting there alone in my thoughts. And the worst thing is, is an idle mind, you know, an idle mind does the devil's work and I'm sitting there left to my own devices. I can't sleep. I'm up half the night. I now remove myself from the bedroom because I don't want to disturb my wife. My wife has been through enough. And I, I just, I started going downstairs, sleeping downstairs and drinking two, three o'clock in the morning, you know, doing my, I, I would go to therapy. I wasn't getting much value from therapy because workers comp would send me to certain places that they, 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 they're not the best doctors. Yeah. One night, about two o'clock in the morning, uh, this is three, four weeks after my shooting. I decide that this is, this is not, I can't do this no more. So I'd still have my off duty gun, which was a Smith and Wesson SW, uh, and I'm so 38 chief special special. It was gorgeous. I mean, I bought this thing for like a hundred dollars and it was just, it was rarely, barely used, but it was my ankle gun. I go in my office, I scribble a little note. I can't, I can't do this no more. Um, I say, you know, in my mind, I say goodbye to my children say, I'm sorry. It just, it's not going to work out. Uh, I say goodbye to my wife, same, you know, much the same way I did on the, on the deck with a lot more tears. I, I, my grandfather, who was extraordinarily important in my life, um, I say, I, 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 he had passed, you know, 1996, but I apologized to him for not being the man that he expect he, he always wanted me to become. And then I put the gun in my mouth. Um, I cocked a hammer back. And, you know, you put your thumb, I can feel the ridges to this day, um, on the trigger. And, um, I can taste the gunpowder on my tongue, the metal, that, that distinct feeling of metal in yeah. your mouth. <clears throat> I just held it there and I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. And I'm thinking I did it. I'm doing it. So this is, this is how irrational I was thinking that if I did it downstairs, no big deal. My family's upstairs sleeping. My two young children, my wife comes down with her. If I were to pull that trigger, my half my head would be blown off because I had hollow points in there. It would have just cavitated through my head and exploded it. Uh, I have a brief pause and I just, I take the gun out of my hands. Now that gun's like 1.9, one pound, nine ounces. It feels like a, you know, lead weight. It feels like a 25 pound plate. And I just stare at it for a while. And I just like, I can't believe what I, I can't believe this, you know, and there was, um, after that night, I realized this gun can't be in my house. I ship it off to a friend and no explanation was, was given, nor was any, nor did they ask for anyone put in a lockbox. I said, you got to keep this for me. I can't have this in my house. That wasn't the only attempt. There was a lot of other attempts. You know, I've taken hands, handful of pills, um, I've tried to drink myself to death. I've tried to hang myself. Uh, I, I tried to hang myself with a dog leash. And one of the stories is actually, I don't mean to make light of it, but I I didn't, I underestimated my weight and I, I had a hook healing from the garage. I put the, I put a string over there, a dog. Uh, I had this string that I used to attach to my dog toy and throw out in the water and retrieve it back and get my dog to go in the water. I hang it around there and put it around my neck and I drop and I must've passed out because I woke up on the floor, the rope had broken. So now, uh, not only do I feel like a failure in life, but I also am a failure at killing myself. I can't even do that right. Uh, I don't really 
nowhere to go. And I'm drinking so heavily morning till night. I got bottles hidden everywhere. I'm, I'm spending a lot of money on alcohol. Um, and this goes, this was my life for six months. Dark days, so, my friend. But I'm a suicide survivor. Um, my six-month-old daughter saved my life. And if you listen to any of my other shows, I talk about it. And the main thing was, for me, was I spent 23 years of my life being Sergeant Kaufman. That was my whole identity. That's who I was. And then when they took my ID and said, I'm no longer Sergeant Kaufman. Well, who's Richard? Because I don't have an identity. I'm not, I don't know anything else. And I felt like a failure. I felt like a failure as a father. I felt like a failure as a husband, as a veteran, as a, you know. Uh, so I totally get where you're coming from. But I want, I wrote something down because I think me and you have a lot, a lot in common. Because right after what happened to me, we, me and my wife, Went to go see the movie American Sniper. Oh, dear. Took me now, three days to get through that movie. But now, the reason why I wear my hat is because I promised his wife that every time I came on the show, I'd wear a hat in honor of Chris. That's why I wear the hat on every show. And I've been Tell invited you. to come on top 10 shows in the world, and I won't go on if they won't allow me to wear my hat and, and give honor to Chris. But the thing that hit my wife the most is when they're having the backyard party and Chris flips out because of a dog with the kids. And then when he's sitting at the TV and the TV's not on, but he's seeing the TV and my wife looked at me, she said, I get it. Now I get it. So, you know, I think that me and you have a lot of that um, in common. You know, we have a lot of different things in common, but so tell me because I know my come to Jesus moment was the day that I attempted suicide and it didn't work out. So what was that moment where you said, you know what? I've had it. I'm tired, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Cause I know you can go back to that exact moment. So there's, um, there's that moment when I had the gun in my mouth and I just didn't hear it at the right time. Okay. There was, there's, there's people, there was things calling me. So I told, I talk about that, uh, that brief moment of interruption when the gun's in my mouth and I just, I just pause and I take it out and it took me years to figure out what that was. I now know that that was my higher power telling me you are not done yet. You have a little bit more to do. This is not your time. This is not your responsibility to even do. So that was my moment where I said, you know, where, where I looking back on it. What really happened was um, I got so out of control because my wife took every bit of abuse from me that you could possibly imagine. <clears throat> Under the worst circumstances, I would call her every single name in the book. Um, I would throw things at her. I spit at, can you imagine? I spit at my wife. There is nothing lower in the world. Okay. That's the ultimate disrespect. It, it really yeah. is. Yeah, but you know when when yeah. post with post traumatic stress, it's thought action. There is no in between. There's no yeah. buffer, and that's 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 how I describe post traumatic stress. Is there's just that that your brain is rewired differently. Um, 
sometime around uh, my my doctor uh, my my real come to Jesus moment. So I had I talked to him about, I talked about him before, Doctor Eugene Stefanelli. He's responsible for saving my life because he's this old Italian from Newark. Um, he's the only he's the only gun lo- loving person I ever met that was at Woodstock. Uh, older guy, but grew up in Newark, tough on the streets, a lot of wise guys around, uh, many saints of Newark type of type of atmosphere. It's kind of where he grew up. And he brings in now at this time, I don't have any guns in my house. I'm scared to death of guns for whatever reason. It totally, I did a complete 180 when it came to weapons. I know I knew weapons up and down. He brings in a Colt 45 World War II with the, the Bakelite handle. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's a he's a gun fanatic, you know. And uh, he's like, "What do you think of this?" And I was like, "Oh, wow, well, that's a pretty gun." But I, you know, I, I'm a guy. I don't want to show any fear. I don't want to be considered a wuss. So I just sort of admire it from a distance. And he's like, "Here, take a look at it." I'm like, and in the back of my head, I'm like, "Are you out of your mind? You're going to give a guy a gun like uh, who just who had who's had one in their mouth? What is the matter with you?" So he hands me the gun and I hold this gun in my hand and I, and I start sweating and I'm just like, I don't grip it. You know, I, I, he obviously made sure he knew exactly what he was doing. I find this out later because he's, he's a very dear friend of mine today. He was seeing whether I was ever going to go back to work. He knew from the look on my face when I held that weapon that I was done being a police officer, that, that feeling, that anxiety that I had, in, I was like, all right, Kevin. It's time to pick yourself up. It's time to get this straight. I couldn't control my drinking. I decided to, um, under his direction, check myself into rehab. So when you walk into rehab uh, for your final time, whether it's multiple times or whether it's your final time, my first time was my final time. I have strip searched way too many people. I have seen things on human beings that I wish I could unsee, but I can't. And I never once thought about how dehumanizing it is until I went to rehab. They, they, they do the intake, pull your pants down, bend over, spread your cheeks and cough. And I said, my God, this is, this is real. But I went into rehab with a very clear mind. I went to, I was one of a few people who went into rehab, very sober, three notebooks, five books. I was going to do my 30 days but the walls closed in on me. I couldn't handle that. Like I, I'm like, all right, it's time for me to start working out. Cause I had stopped working out for a short time. It's time for me to start working out again. I didn't look like a cop. I, you know, my hair's long, my beard's long. Cause that's what all cops do when they retire, they grow a beard. And, um, so I'm in there. And the funny thing was, is they put me in a room with a guy who got arrested for heroin. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> This is how karma works. I he go, I said, what are you in here? I said, I'm in here for alcohol. What are you in here for? And he goes, uh, I'm, I'm in here for heroin. I said, did you get arrested? And he goes, yeah. And, I, and he mentions the department that he got arrested in. And it's the department my brother works in. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Then he said, and I said, well, do you remember the officer's name? And he says my brother's name. I'll never forget him. He was a jerk. He was this. He was that. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in a room in rehab with a guy my brother arresting. I sobered up so quick. I checked myself out and I started, that was the start of my comeback. That was the start of my journey back. I went home. I was never so happy to be home. Now I had my ebbs and flows when I got back. 
and I continued therapy. One of the things that really helped me out was group therapy. So uh, my doctor ran a group for officers who were involved in critical incidents and shooting specifically. And I go to this thing and I don't want to go, but I'm sitting there and I'm, uh, there were some guys who had been in there a little bit more longer than I have. And I'm listening to them telling, telling their stories because there's no way they can possibly understand what I've gone through. I'm just the weakest human being alive because I already put a gun in my mouth. I tried to hang myself. But their stories were very similar to mine. Then it comes to me and I have to tell my story. And it was hard, but it wasn't as hard as trying to tell my story to somebody who didn't understand. And that's that was group for me. And group for me was the one place in the world where I could go and feel normal for a short period of time. I knew I was never going back to work. I'd already put my papers in for an accidental disability. And it finally comes through in June, June 1st, 2014. I officially retire from the police department. And there's many trials in between because that's that's a whole other process that's that's stressful. Um, and there was an old during the time I was out of work, when you're out on workers' comp, you can't work. And that's again, that's I taught myself. I did everything I could to keep my mind occupied. I taught myself how to forge steel. I taught myself how to make moonshine, which I never drank. Um, not the, the best thing. I taught myself how to plate braid. Do you know what plate braiding is? Have you ever heard of it? So plate braiding is used for one thing, and that's to make bull whips. So I have in my house, I have two nine foot paracord bull whips, lead shot centers that crack. They are, they're the real deal. That's how crazy I was doing to try to keep my mind occupied. Now there was an old builder in town. He's a, he's an old Marine. He was in Dominican Republic in 65. He comes by and he knows, like he knows that I'm not okay. So he says, Hey, listen, um, you're going to come work with me. I was like, sure, I'll come. He was building a house down the street. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll help you out. And he goes, no, you're going to come work for me. I'm going to pay you. And I said, I, he's like, no, there's, this is not a question. This is a demand. You're coming. That man saw something in me, knew I had to get out of the house, knew I had to have some sort of purpose. And I went there and, and, and built houses, hard work, like really hard work, but it made me the most clean I've ever been in my life. Uh, I never touched alcohol. Thankfully, I never went back to that. I remember, I remember all too well what that experience was like. It sort of scared me straight. But this man took took pity on a guy who was really lost and got me back in there. So I retired from the police department, but I always stayed in group because I'm the type of person that I don't take anything for free. You know, if somebody gives me something, there's debit that that's attached mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. Not to that person who gave it to me, but to the next person who needs it like I needed it. Because I, I know, this is not a solo journey. This is not a journey that, that I went on alone. This is a journey that many, many people helped me on. Well, let me ask you a question because um, starting January 1st, I mean, I have T-shirts, I have hats, I have coffee. And the project that I'm giving my profits of my, my company to is called the Artisans Outreach. Because there's something about a veteran or a first responder when they're working with their hands, it kind of brings peace. Yep. So I wanted to bring that because that's, you know, if you guys buy any T-shirts or hats for me, all the proceeds go to help artisan outreach. And I just wanted to say that because I think it's so important that once a veteran or a first responder, once we find a mission again, we're less likely to take that weapon out. And take our our lives again. 
So I think that was awesome because that guy that he, I call, he was an angel. He and when he said, "Kevin, you're working with me," and you started working with your hands, it kind of took your mind off some stuff and it actually helps you heal. So I think that's a really great thing that you have. You've had angels all around you, making sure that you're still here today to accomplish your mission today. Give me a little bit of hope. All right, hold on. Pain ends. Hope. And I, that's, you know, loss of hope. There's been plenty of times when I've lost hope in my life. Uh, but every success I've ever had is when hope never waned. So that, his, his name was Bill Taylor. He's since passed. But he gave me hope. And I'm indebted to him for the rest of my life. I'm indebted to my wife for staying with me for the rest of my life. I'm indebted to, um, the, you know, the, the funny thing about the police department is, very few people there there were people that reached out to me i answered none of them i didn't know what to say and the people and, and then i was surprised the people who didn't reach out but now I, I look back and i'm like well no no kidding they didn't reach out because they didn't know what to say where i was very angry at those people at the very beginning just like i was angry at that guy who shot at me anthony vocatoro i was so angry at him if i ever saw him i'd punch him right in the mouth i look back at him and I, and this just happened probably, I don't know, three years ago. I said, God, what did that guy, what, what was going on in that guy's head? He wasn't shooting at Kevin Donaldson. He was shooting at a cop. He was shooting at an authority figure that was going to stop him from doing what he felt that he had to do. So what was going on in his head that brought him to that part of shooting at police officers multiple times? So I have a lot of compassion for him. Now, secondary to that, he he volleys around at my head, changes my life forever. Did he really change it for the worse? That's the big question. I'm going to tell you he didn't. He changed my life for the better. Ten years removed, I have a better relationship with my wife. I have a better relationship with my kids. I have a better outlook on life. I'm more purpose-driven. It's given me a mission. It's given me a message. And that guy... I, this is going to sound str so strange. You talk about angels. He was an angel. He was an angel. I've had a couple different angels in my life. Dr. Eugene Stefanelli is one of them. Anthony Vocatoro is another one. Bill Taylor is one of them. My wife is another one. A gentleman named Adam Burt, uh, who, who brought me back to my faith. These are all angels that have surrounded me, and I've been blind. You know, you, you're, you're legally blind, okay? But you can see. I could see, but I was legally blind. And I didn't even see these people around me. I get it, you know, and, and I think I love Helen Keller's quote just says, you know, what's worse, being able to see or not having a vision. Mm. And I, I think that's awesome. Like the guy that saved my life, I actually robbed a cop and was looking at five years for grand larceny. And he he gave me a break and said, you know, you gotta go to you got to get me my money back and you got to do 90 days in AA. And I hit like 300 meetings in a row and I haven't had a drink since uh, yesterday, 35 years ago. And if I knew who, if I remembered who it was, I would give him the world. I'd give him everything I had because he was, he was my angel. Even though I robbed the angel, he was the angel that saved me and helped me become the man I am. So even me, 
My wife is my angel. My kids are my angel. That gentleman was my angel. I have angels all around me always protecting me. So that's why we have a lot in common. Well, here's the big question for you. And I'm going to pose this question to you. So that guy who you robbed, you call him your angel. Yeah. Did that angel enter your life and give you the opportunity to rob him because that was the event that was going to change your life? I think so. I think that because God knows you before you're even born. So I, I he knew what was going to happen even before I was born. So I think everything was destined to be the way it is today. That's why when I'm, because I'm on like almost 300 podcast episodes, I get interviewed almost once a day. And I tell everybody, they ask me, would you change anything? And I was, I, and I'm like, no, I wouldn't change one thing because I'm, I wouldn't be the man standing in front of you today. If I, I didn't agree with you, go through everything. I wouldn't change a damn thing in my life. I wish, God, I wish I wasn't so mean to my family. Uh, I wish that I was still a police officer, but I really wouldn't change anything. Um, I had to go through what I had to go through in order to get to where I am today. And I'm, I'm happy with where I am today. You know, and I'm always driven to, to do better. I owe it to the people. I owe it to those people that don't have hope. I owe it to the people that, that have helped me along that, at their own peril. Who, who made sure, and it wasn't just a phone call. They showed up at my house to make sure that I was okay. You and know, I think that everything happened for you because there's going to be somebody that's going to have another Wednesday morning at 1240 mm. that you're going to be like, I've been there. I got you. Because I always say um, trauma is, I, a lot of trauma is stuff that happened between the ages of three and 13 then you add alcohol or you add drugs to the mix and or you add war or you add police work to the mix and it becomes a perfect storm and nobody can tell you how to get out of the perfect storm unless they've been there because me and you now we can reach down into the fire pull these people out and say we've been there i got you i'll take the arrows for you until you can get healthy again so you're here because there's going to be somebody else at another 1240 on a Wednesday morning. So did you ever, did you ever hear the story about how um, the thunder and lightning storms on the prairie? So you have a herd of cattle, thunder and lightning storm hits, the cattle scatter, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know, they don't know how to react to that, that fear and stuff. Then you have a herd of buffalo. Do you ever hear how buffalo react in, in thunder and lightning storms? They, they herd up. Into, yep, yep. They herd up and they protect one another. So our job now is we, we got through some awful stuff. Our job now is to herd up instead of scatter. Too many people take, 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 and they, they'll never find that purpose-driven life by taking anything. You know, obviously people are willing to give you things. Now you, now you have to give back. You have to give back and you have to herd up around them and protect them because they can't protect themselves until they're ready to protect themselves. And I tell, I tell everybody, anybody that reaches out to me for help, I tell them, they'll say, thank you. I owe you. I said, you don't owe me anything, but you do owe, you owe the next person. Don't think this is free. This is not this, whatever I'm helping you with, whatever I'm getting you through, this is not free. I make that very, very clear. There is a cost to this stuff and don't, don't accept the help if you're unwilling to accept the cost. Cause that's what makes the world go round. You know, it's a transactional society. 
you know, you got some fish, I got some coconuts, let's do a trade. Well, this person's in need. I have a couple of tools. Let me help you out with the tools. Once you get the tools, you got to give them to the to the next person. And like, and I've been in recovery thirty five years, and they say that you cannot give a, you cannot give a, you can't keep what you can't give away. So for me, it's always paying it forward. So the last question I have is, how do we find you? How do we support your mission? And if there's a veteran or a first responder listening to this saying, my gun is right here and I need help because I don't want to eat it. How do they get in touch with you? They can always go to realkevindonaldson.com. Now, obviously, there's probably a lot of fake Kevin Donaldsons, but the reason it's real Kevin Donaldson is because there's too many Kevin Donaldsons. So my website is realkevindonaldson.com. I'm that way on all social media as well, Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, You can also go to thesufferingpodcast.com. That is my show. That is my passion. That is my new mission. Uh, where we overcome, we talk about overcoming adversity and uh, really using your suffering as a, as a strength. And any one of those ways, I am very responsive to any of that stuff. If you are in need, listen, th- there are people who reach out to me, like we were talking about in the beginning of the show, casting that wide net. There are things that realign you with your message, me- uh, mission. Sometimes we get a little skewed. We get a little, um, we go down a, b- a bad path where we're a little detoured. Um, and every once in a while, there are things that bring you back. And I just got one from a guy. Um, he, he right. He's a, he's a retired NYPD. He says, um, Hey brother, just so you know, your podcast kept me going when I wanted to give up many nights sitting in my bed, staring at my drawer. That right there realigned me with my mission so much just to give somebody a little bit of peace so they have that same pause that I had and they're able to to realize that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Because, And everybody says, well, why are you doing that? You got so much to live for. Because those people who are saying that are trying to rationalize an irrational behavior. Suicide is an irrational behavior. I don't think there's anybody on the planet that is going to disagree with that. There is no way to rationalize it. No, there's not. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, when a person takes their own life, they're just passing the pain on to the to their family. And so that's like you said, it's a total, total irrational uh, thought process. So, guys, make sure you you reached out to Kevin, because since I, I started following you everywhere and I love the content that you're putting out and just knowing that you're here in New Jersey. (laughs) <laughs> Knowing that we can hang out sometime, it makes it a little bit more real that, you know, you're just a hop, skip and a jump away from here. You know. Well, the one thing I want to I want to leave with is I want everybody to know this. So people such as us, we, we do our best to help our fellow human being. But don't ever make the mistake that we have it all figured out because we don't. We don't. Oh. We are we are all works in progress. We have our good days. We have our bad days. So that mistake, and I know too many people make that mistake. They're like, well, you went through it. You got it all figured out. No, I don't. I, I'm, I'm learning as I go along. I have some extra tools. And, I, and if I can't help you, I have people on in my, in my address book that can help you. And I've passed many people. My show has been able to get, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 20 people into either mental health or, or addiction recovery. And 
listen, out of the, the thousands of people that, that listen, great. That's awesome. But those 15 to 20 people, that, that's my, uh, you put that on my tombstone and I'll be happy. You know, that's why I want to leave. And, you know, one thing that we, even before we even got on, and we're not going to talk about it, where I want to have another show, I want to get together again. But, like, when I put out a video and you put out a video, it's real AF all the time. It's not AI generated. It's us. It's saying, hey, guys, I may be having a great day, but then some days, like, I put out a video the other day, and it was because it was New Year's Eve, and me and my wife, we watched the Godfather. And he talks about keeping your enemies close, you know, your friends close and your enemies closer. And I put out a post and I said, listen, if I don't fuck with you, there's a reason why I don't fuck with you because I don't trust you and you're not trustworthy. So people know if I put a post out like that, it's me, it's nobody else. Mm. And I think the same thing with you. If, oh, yeah. if you. If you put a post out, it's you coming from the heart. It's not just to get likes, to get hearts and all this stuff. You're out there making a difference and talking from your heart, right? Yeah, uh, 100%. And that's I, I, all I want people to know. What's There is beauty inside of me. There's darkness inside of me too. But there is beauty inside that sometimes I love to create those things because those little words of wisdom in my worst times have gotten me through some really difficult moments. You know, and I want maybe I can get just one person. Just one. That's all I care about is just one. I'm happy with that. So, guys, make sure that you you Google the real Kevin Donaldson. He's going to come up everywhere. And, brother, I just want to say thank you. I'm so grateful that we got to spend time. Um, and, you know, thank you to your beautiful bride for letting me take up this time to hang out with me today. <laughs> I appreciate it, Richard. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I wish you continued success. I love you. And, guys, remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is but up. I love you. I know you see me for six times today. You're ready to shut your computer off. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week. Kevin, have a great week, brother. You too. Great talking to you. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.